This podcast is brought to you by Yosmark Mountain Equipment, offering expert advice on gear for powder and the backcountry. Located at the corner of Ski Hill Road and 3rd Street in Driggs. And by Three Rivers Ranch Outfitters, offering winter trip planning services and selling gear from Patagonia, Orvis, Hatch, Rio, Sims, and more. Located at 76 North Main Street in Driggs. Andy Tyson is from Victor and runs a solar, wind, and hydropower company called Creative Energies. He also happens to be an experienced climber and mountain guide. So when NBC needed help powering their cameras to film a special on Mount Everest, Andy got the call. That TV special never happened. I heard the avalanche, but there's lots of avalanches, and this one wasn't any louder than any of the others. Michael happened to be looking at it. As soon as he saw it, he went over to our Sirdar, um, which is kind of our head Sherpa, and, and asked him what, you know, what he knew. And Lakpa got on the radio and learned that there had been a big avalanche and that people were hurt, and you know, some of our team were definitely involved. That slide hit a group of 50 Sherpa guides, including some from Andy's team. I'm Scott Stunts. Today on Get Out the Podcast from the Teton Valley News, I talked to Andy Tyson about what it was like just after the avalanche that claimed 13 lives and what, if anything, the accident says about the state of climbing on Mount Everest. Here we go. So were you in camp when when the 16 climbers were caught in that avalanche? I mean, were you were you in base camp or where were you? I was in base camp and our base camp is one of the highest in base camp. It's, it actually is pretty long. It's spread out over, I don't know if it's a mile or more. And so our base camp is right at the base of the icefall. And I actually was one of the responders. So I, I went up and helped deal with the with the aftermath, including taking care of some of the victims and then also uh, doing some of the body recoveries man that has to be that had to be tough it was it was uh it was tough it was also you know when something happens being able to help and respond it feels good as well so you're not sure what to think or what to do in a situation like that but if you can actually be part of the process to take care of or help after the event then I don't know in some ways that gives me something to do <laughs> so when you back at base camp heard that something had gone wrong was there any indication of how bad it was well we actually one of my co-guides michael horst was getting out of his tent i was having a cup of coffee in the kind of uh, our, our dining tent and michael was getting out of his tent and looked up and and I heard the avalanche, but there's lots of avalanches, and this one wasn't any louder than any of the others. Michael happened to be looking at it and saw that where it happened was a bad spot, and likely because of what our schedule was that we had some of our team members potentially in the area. So he, as soon as he saw it, he went over to our Sirdar, um, which is kind of our head Sherpa and organizer of our expedition, and asked him what you know, what he knew. And Lakpa got on the radio quickly and learned that there had been a big avalanche and that people were hurt. And, you know, some of our team were definitely involved. And at that point, Michael kind of let the rest of the guides know and the four Alpine Ascent Western guides, including myself, and then uh, and Lakpa and his brother Kami all suited up. And we were probably out of base camp within 15 minutes, you know. So from the actual event of the avalanche to getting out of camp with our stuff to try and go respond, we were, it was probably less than 20 minutes or so. 
So, it, so we really, you know, we heard, we knew something was bad, and we knew somebody needed to help. So we were on our way. What was the scene like when you, when you got to the icefall? The icefall itself, you know, it was probably, we, would, we were going to have to travel, and we traveled about 1,500 to 2,000 feet up through the icefall. And so initially it's the way it always is. You know, there was no difference. You know, this was actually not that big of an avalanche. It was a big chunk of ice that broke off and broke into large and small pieces and uh, and came down and basically hit one spot on the route. So the majority of the route and the majority of the way up was, was fine. So all the way up, um, we ran into a couple of people on the way down that had been involved and did a little bit of patient assessment and made sure that they were good to keep going down. And then there was, by that time, there were some people coming into the base of the icefall to to help out with anyone coming out and we just continued up until we came upon um, some patients basically that needed to be transported out by helicopter so what made this particular avalanche so deadly was just the fact that it hit that area that all the climbers happened to be in or you were saying that wasn't as as large as some other ones what made it so i guess so deadly compared to other avalanches just where it was this i mean this avalanche happened in a place it's the ice fall in general i mean it's an ice fall and then it's also threatened by these hanging seracs or, or glaciers basically that have a steep face on the lower end of them and that basically fall down all the time and so it's not uncommon for avalanches in this area of ice big chunks that come down it's just whether people are there or not and so there's many bigger and smaller ones it just happens whether or not someone's there and really no one's going up through the icefall other than a, a couple of months out of the year and on those times people are essentially rolling the dice to a certain degree there's there was a bunch of talk in camp about where the route is this year or has been historically in the last few years a number of years ago, I don't know how many, 10, 20 years ago, the route was a little bit more central in that area of the icefall, which would mean that it was threatened less by the uh, seracs on the west shoulder, which is what let loose on this one. In the last few years, it's been more on closer to the west shoulder as it was this year. Why is that? Is that, I mean, if uh, the other route's safer, why... Yeah, the the icefall is a big jumble. <laughs> it's a it's kind of like a waterfall of ice. I mean, a normal glacier is smooth on the surface. When it goes over a steep enough, just like water, when it goes over a steep enough drop, it breaks up. And so, the the icefall is essentially a waterfall to a glacier. And so, it's just a bunch of jumbled ice blocks. And if you're trying to make a route through there, uh, it changes every year. In in the last few years, it's actually been a little bit easier kind of over on the west side. Okay. Yeah. And you were saying that some of the people involved in the accident were, were from your team. Did you know some of the people who, who passed away in the avalanche? I didn't know uh, at that time any of the people that passed away. Though they were on our team, we had just gotten together. Uh, I had only been at base camp for a few days. And I certainly, the, the day before, we had spent a lot of time as a whole team, but I hadn't gotten a chance to meet everyone and get everyone's name and connect a face to a name. So though I've 
you know, was acquainted and had uh, done a lot of uh, dancing and, and hanging out with our whole team the day before. I didn't really actually know any of them. What was the atmosphere in base camp in, you know, in the following days, in the days after? Well, I think for the Alpine Ascents team, which I was with, we had two different expeditions going on, but we were really just one guiding team and one Sherpa team. And between the the guides and the Sherpa and some of the clients as well, you know, we were, we, we lost five members of our of our group, all Sherpa in the avalanche, and. Uh, there just wasn't much uh, interest or motivation in the guiding and the Sherpa uh, group to continue the expedition and and really just a lot of, you know, grieving as well. So there, in the rest of base camp, there was a, a little bit of a wide variety. I mean, certainly there was a lot of grieving and certainly there were some teams that were affected pretty significantly as well. But there was also just a, a bit of politics that crept in, I guess, in terms of uh, a group wanting to push some agenda forward in terms of more compensation for c- certain situations. And this was a group within within the Sherpas. Yep. Yes. Absolutely. And it was uh, for you know for us we were we we had a tough decision, but in a sense. It wasn't that hard of a decision. Um, you know, we lost five members, and we we, we really just needed to um, wrap up the expedition and go home and let folks hang out with their families and, and grieve. And so it was fairly straightforward for Alpine Ascents, at least in that situation, to, to um, decide to close up the expedition. You know, I think that a lot has been made about, you know, the what a lot of people were calling like the strike or the the Sherpa strike that was going on. But it seems like that's not, well, you're just saying that's not what influenced your team's decision to come down. Not at all. And I would say there were some other expeditions as well that weren't influenced by the strike as, as some were calling it. It was more, I don't, it may have become a strike in the end. Um, but initially it was just uh, recognition that, the work that that many of the Sherpa are doing is work and it's dangerous. And they were advocating some – a smaller minority was really pushing to get some more um, compensation for, for situations. Rightly so. I mean they, they had legitimate agenda points. It seemed a little bit confusing for most other people to see how it linked up with what actually was going on or what had actually just happened in terms of a, an avalanche tragedy. So a lot of people didn't get those the connection between the grievances and the event that just happened? Well, there's certainly a connection, but it was hard because there was obviously we needed to grieve and there needed to be some – this was a time at the same time that the they had the politician's ear. And so it, it made sense to, to lobby as well. So was it almost – not the circumstances of the specific accident that triggered some of those things, but it's issues and things that have been boiling for a long time that this level of, you know, loss of life was, you know, sort of was the catalyst that brought, you know, when they had that attention, they went for it in a way. Absolutely. And, and well, I mean, 
I think with probably any political movement, there's some sort of catalyst that may or may not be directly connected. But there was obviously some underlying uh, issues that uh, the Sherpa community, at least some, wanted to push forward. And and this was an obvious time to do that. Uh, but it was a separate political action than the large tragedy that happened. And I think maybe, you know, obviously I have a very outside view of this thing just and just from reading the reports in different outlets and, you know, it was covered in a lot of different places. And it almost seemed like, you know, what you're saying that, you know, it wasn't the exact circumstances of that of the of the avalanche it was you know some of those long-standing issues and for me as an outside person looking in it almost seemed like there was almost some emotional issues of not just you know proper levels of compensation but maybe the sherpa community not feeling that maybe proper levels of of respect or or things like that i mean was were some of those you know issues like that? I mean, do, do you I think? Yeah, I, I hear, I, I think I understand what you're asking. I don't really feel like that's the case at all. Most of the, you know, the, there's, from the outside, there's kind of these Western folks over there, and then there's these Sherpa, and they have a kind of a, a tough relationship. But honestly, many of the Sherpa are very, you know, ambitious folks. And many of the Western folks are very ambitious folks as well. And, you know, this job in particular is a really well-paying job for the area. And and I'm not going to get these numbers right, but they're going to be in, in perspective. You know, a, a Sherpa may make somewhere between $500 and $1,000 a year, just in a regular kind of employment situation. In uh, working on Everest for two months, a Sherpa is going to make somewhere between five and seven thousand dollars. So it's a big chunk, and uh, there's a lot of motivation to work on the mountain and work up high on the mountain. And I think if you ask any of the Sherpa that were there, they would say, "I want that. I want to work here." Now, should they is kind of another question. It's a dangerous occupation, and and it's a dangerous route, and it's really hard to make the route any different. So it's a little bit of a tough choice to say, well, I'm going to get really good wages, but I'm going to work in a very dangerous place. How do you, you know, how do you give folks a different opportunity? I don't know. The work is there. People want to climb Everest. People want to go up that route. I don't have a good solution for that, but I think it is important to recognize that most of the Sherpa are there not because the, you know, they're, they have to be there. They're there to make a good chunk of money, and they want the work. And so there's a decent amount of ambition on their end as well. There are some things that could be done differently, though. And I was going to say, obviously, you've, you know, when you were there, you probably didn't see a lot of the coverage. But I'm guessing once you've gotten back, that's probably something you've been doing is, you know, looking at the coverage of it. Has there been anything that struck you as anything missing from the coverage that you've seen? You know, one of the things that I I feel like is a little bit missing is just the idea that the route on the south side of Everest is a little bit unique in, uh, I've said that before, um, you know, unique, but Everest really, the south side route goes up through a, a major ice fall with, that's threatened by seracs from both sides. And there are very few 
commonly, if any, commonly climbed routes on mountains like that in the world. That's it. It's a dangerous spot. But historically, when Hillary and Tenzing were going to climb, they, they wanted to go climb Everest. And the Chinese side was not open, which is where Mallory and Irving had gone and other expeditions had gone. And actually, some of the early explorers looked over and looked at the Western Coombe and looked at the icefall and said, no one's ever going to go up there. And so it was climbed the first time by the route from the south through the icefall. And so it's got some historical precedence. It's in Nepal. There's political ease. It's not a piece of cake, but it's a little bit easier to work with the Nepalese government often than it is with the Chinese government. But that doesn't get over the fact that the icefall is just a dangerous spot. And I don't know, you know, I, I think it just gets lumped into like, Mountains are dangerous and climbing is dangerous and there's avalanches. And, but this is a little bit more specific than that. You know, the south side route goes to the icefall. It's a super dangerous spot and it's on Everest. And that's why people are going there. And, you know, there are some dangers that you're not going to be able to mitigate because you're on a 8,000 meter peak, but you don't have to go through that icefall. You're saying there are other options like to go from the north side. You can go from the north side. That's got its own challenges. Um, you know, I, I think the the desire um, by people to climb Everest leads them to one of two choices, to go in through China or to go through Nepal. And those are two routes that are kind of the easiest in those two spots. But they both have their challenges. So I think it's worth looking at it and realizing that, you know, the route is a little bit particular and dangerous on the south side in the icefall, different than um, many other places in the world. As an armchair Everest person, like the most reading I've done about Everest was into thin air, you know, and it's one of those things that, you know, looking at the effect of that, what was one of the deadliest days before this, you know, it seemed like it had lasting repercussions, not only because of how many people died, but almost it said something about the mountain at that time, because you had all of those people on there, and it kind of was at those moment where the media was looking at the mountain and, and people were looking at it where at one point it was this really remote thing. And now you have you're being to have Discovery Channel shows and, and, you know, it said something about the commercialization of the mountain. And I, I realize this is a really big sort of awkward question, but do you think that this particular accident says anything about the state of Everest or what's going on on the mountain now? I, I don't know if it's well, I don't know if it says anything in particular about what's going on on the mountain now. I think it it just highlights, you know, as you mentioned, uh, into thin air um, and the ninety six accidents basically got people even more interested. and uh, and there's some, you know, some opinions are, well, you know, here it is in the news again. It's just gonna keep getting more and more people interested. And it may because people want to climb the, the highest point on earth. They want to get up Mount Everest, you know. It's, but at the same time, I, I hope people recognize a little bit. There's a little Russian roulette involved in this particular route going through the icefall. You know, that's, it is dangerous. Maybe that's what draws people to it. But I, I don't know if it says anything in particular other than, hey, there's a lot of people 
and there's a lot of support. There may be some ways that we can get around some of the, the trips through the dangerous spot, helicopters or leaving gear at Camp 2 or, you know, lots of different things are out there. But, um, but I think it just highlights that there's a lot of people over there. All right. Well, Andy, thank you very much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. No problem. Thanks to Andy Tyson for talking to me today. To listen to other episodes of Get Out the Podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes or on Stitcher. The music on today's show came from Nick Hodges and was used under the Creative Commons license. I'm Scott Stunts. Thanks for listening.